Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the High Fly New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Ashley Dean. She's currently the VP of Development and Programs at Science of Sport, which I'm super excited to dig into. Ashley has almost 20 years of experience in the sports and events industry, six years at the Kobe Bryant Mamba Sports Academy. She was a dominant volleyball player in college. Woohoo at the Big Green, two-time captain. She's gone on the coach at many levels, a family person, and just so excited to have Ashley on. Ashley, thanks for joining us today. Alex, great to be here. Good to see you. So good to see you. So good. It's been way, way too long. Way too We're going to start with a warm-up game. I'm just going to say something. First thing that comes to mind, if it's a choice, just make your choice. Cool? All right. I love it. La Jolla. Home. Big Green. Also home. Lou's or Murphy's? Murphy's. Mamba. Mentality. Tornadoes. Growth. Wise. Passion. Science of sport. Fulfillment. It's awesome. Uh, La Jolla, that's you were born and raised? Born and raised, lived there till I was 18. Um, fortunately, I'm, I'm back out in California, about two and a half hours north, so still able to sneak down there for long weekends, and, and it's always home for me, so I love going back. You're saying fortunately, like as if northern New England and the plains of the Upper Valley <laughs> is not where you want to be. Come on. I mean, I, I hear like eight months of the year. I know. Don't miss I, that. I know. I we have clear blue skies here today, and I, you know, I, I actually had a thought this morning. I'm like, oh, I wonder if Alex woke up to, woke up to some snow on the ground. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely happened in May. Certainly, you know, when I was coaching the U.S. team, I was I lived in La Jolla. We had a little apartment there. What I loved about it, it's like a little city in a city, and you can walk everywhere, which was really cool. Beach, yeah. great restaurants. You know, there's certain parts of the year where you definitely, uh, as a local, get out of town because all the uh, out-of-towners come in into vacation. But uh, it's uh, it's still very quaint, which which makes it really special. So why did you decide to jump ship San Diego and head as far away as you possibly could? So a little bit, as you mentioned, I played volleyball. <clears throat> Grew up playing um for, for a very competitive club team through uh, through high school. And, you know, I, excuse me, I had always felt that um, I was ready to move away from home and chose to go pretty much as far away as possible. Uh, so went through the recruiting process, had a great experience with that. And, you know, the interesting thing with Ivy League, as, as you very well know, is there's no actual scholarship money. Um, it's all, you know, need-based, financial need-based. So there came a point during the recruiting process where I really had to evaluate. I did have some full ride offers from some great volleyball programs and, and also great academic institutions. But I really made a choice that I wanted to go to the best uh, academic institution. And, and that came down to, to Dartmouth and, and UPenn. Um, went on recruiting visits to both and just fell in love with just Hanover. And obviously, uh, the coach at the time, who I'm still great, uh, great friends with, who has been a great mentor in my life, um, the team when they were there, 
um, had a great recruiting visit, loved everything about how quaint Hanover was, and so knew that was going to be my home for the next four years. You certainly came then on your on your um, recruiting trip in the summer or the fall. Clearly, <laughs> I did. I actually it was it was fall, and probably a week or two later, you know, I maybe my decision would have been different. But I will say when I when I showed up to campus. Um, the fall of my freshman year, you know, you, you show up early as a fall athlete and you're, you know, you get the tail end of summer and then probably around like September, October, my, my mom comes out to visit and I, I look at her and I say like, we need to go shopping. I didn't own a North Face. I didn't even know what North Face was. <laughs> I mean, I had to fully gear up and, you know, which was really a fun experience. And uh, fortunately, there were plenty, plenty of people around and on the team who could guide me in the right direction when it came to all the right gear that you need for a for a Hanover winter. You had so many good humans on your team, you know, the, yeah. the pages, the mirror browsers of the world and so many, there's a long list of them. Kind of what are the things that you best remember about your Dartmouth experience that you that you take with you now into your great career? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's such an incredible feeling being a student athlete. Um, it's 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 so unique, and and obviously you show up um, and you immediately have a family, right? You have individuals on your team who um, have themselves been freshmen, and so have kind of been through the experience of what it's like showing up on campus. Uh, the great thing about being a volleyball player in New Hampshire was that we had a lot of Southern Californians actually who had who had done the same journey, right? You mentioned Paige and Mare. Um, and so, you know, immediately there was this this great family environment, um, the support um, from these incredible women who, you know, not only became teammates, but some of them were sorority sisters. And then certainly a lot of them have become like this extended family um, beyond beyond college. And I'm still very fortunate. There's a text chain of probably, you know, 12 to 15 of us from the, you know, my my playing era, which spans, you know, six, six years. I didn't play for six years, but the individuals that I played with cover cover that span of time. And so it's so fun to just still have that community and, and keep in touch with everyone. Yeah, I mean, Dartmouth certainly does that. And you were, you know, two-time captain, a leader of leaders, really. What kind of the decision-making after Dartmouth to continue to, to, to pursue sport, to continue to pursue volleyball as a coach? You know, certainly under a lot of pressure from all directions, people are getting recruited to do this banking thing, this consulting thing, become doctors, attorneys, et cetera. You and I kind of picked different paths in that regard. Kind of what yeah. was your thought process? Yeah, we really, I mean, we did, right? And that's like always my story when I go back and speak to current student athletes at Dartmouth is a little bit for me was I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do or grow up to be, um, which is which is unique to, as you reference, like it's competitive environment. And I had freshman year roommates who knew exactly what they were going to do, you know, five years down the road. But um, I also, it, you know, when I graduated, it was, um, you know, 9-11 had just happened. So there were a lot of the market, the job market was tough um, and it was competitive. And actually a lot of a lot of my classmates chose to go and get their grad degrees and, and whatever and kind of extend their education. Um, so a little bit of it was timing. Um, a little bit of it was not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but knowing that sports had always played a huge role in my life. And, you know, my my coaches across all the sports I played, I played multiple sports growing up at various levels and they were always my mentors. So I knew that was a very natural fit and calling for me. 
um, and something that whether I was going to call it a career or not, I knew it was going to continue to be like a passion project of mine. And so, you know, it just happened that I, I got a little taste of it my first couple of years out of college at a all all girls school down in Washington, D.C. And then I realized, you know, I really liked I liked coaching. I liked the environment. I liked being a mentor. Um, and I knew I wanted to take it to the college level. So that's what that second step was. I, I transitioned from from an all-girls school in D.C. and I became an assistant coach at Northeastern University um, and spent four years there. And while I was there, I was able to get my MBA. So I felt like it was, you know, d- there was dual purpose there during my time. Yeah, how cool is that? You're coaching at a D1, you know, volleyball uh, program and able to get an MBA, which isn't easy to do. Yeah, it was uh, the best of all worlds, I'd say. That's awesome. Why the switch? Why the switch from coaching? You know, um, (laughs) that's such. I get that question all the time. So yeah, yeah. You know, um, I I felt there there's tremendous challenges in coaching, right? And it's exhilarating, and and I have so much respect and for all individuals who continue that path. Um, For me, you know, there was a business element. there's a little bit of just wanting to explore what else was out there. Um, and again, that goes back to not necessarily having like this straight trajectory that I was going to follow outside of college. And so, you know, through coaching, I, I was put in some situations um, that really led to some interesting like transitional moments in my career. And one was um, you, you mentioned tornadoes. Right. And I think I my word was growth. Um, that was actually an experience tied to coaching. So I was a director of our youth programming. It was at a big facility down in Houston, Texas, um, about 60 foot square foot, foot, excuse me, 60,000 square foot facility. Um, and, you know, start to dabble in the business of running a for-profit, uh, very kind of prominent club in Houston and realized, wow, there's not only the coaching part and impact and getting to work with all these great families, but wow, there's a business model here that like shows actually this is, um, you know, a profitable business, right? And there's uh, volleyball's a very competitive youth sport um, and traditionally comes with a lot of families from middle to upper um, upper income levels, right? And so saw that, enjoyed that exposure to the business side of it. And that really led to like my, my next couple of steps in my career after, after Houston. Yeah. So I mean, for us right now at the Free Jacks, we're trying to figure out just in rugby in general in this country, right? It's always kind of existed, but it's exists in silos in some areas, you know, Massachusetts, it's a, you know, state sanctioned high school sport. Um, you know, rugby for the most part has always been people's second or third sport growing up. Um, just because there hasn't been a clear scholastic pathway and a clear Olympic pathway. And now, obviously, a lot of that has changed. Women in particular, it's been it's an NCAA emerging sport, but the even the men's programs are more like men's rowing on a lot of campuses as opposed to recreational intramural sport. But as we kind of try to figure out how best to go about building these pathways, and I know you've seen it from so many different angles, but in particular, volleyball, where it can be so hyper-specialized, especially at a young age, and that's kind of what people end up doing. Um, just kind of walk, walk us through your thoughts on, if you etch a sketch this from the very beginning, what would it look like, you know, in terms of the sports, you know, if you want someone to be a successful Olympian, particularly in our sport in rugby or a World Cup champion? 
So, well, let me ask you this. Do you want me to, uh, I could go two ways of this. I could go the reality of what it probably is going to look like from here on. Right. Or, yeah. or, or kind of, you know, if, if I could recreate it for today's youth, what would that look like? Cause I, I do think, um, you know, there's, there's two ways and, and maybe I'll answer my own question. I'll start with probably what the reality is. Um, yeah. And I have no doubt you're seeing it in rugby and I'm so I'm so thrilled to hear that um, there is, you know, development there for for the sport for for girls and boys for rugby um, in the long term. So that that's awesome because it's an incredible sport. But I'd say, you know, there is a lot of focus on specialization, um, and you know, I say sadly because I'm I grew up playing all the sports. I have a feeling you did. We're probably right at the cusp of like that last generation of athletes where we could do multiple things for a long period of time. Um, and be able to, you know, feel success and however we define success. And I think nowadays there's, there's pressure to specialize. Um, I certainly see it out here with, uh, some of my nieces and nephews who are competing at high levels in their sport. Um, so while I'd say while the focus to specialize in one sport is very prevalent, I also see growth and development around the importance of taking a, a holistic approach to that growth and development. And what that means is you're not just grinding in the skill of the sport, right? There's a nice balance of maybe some, some strength and conditioning or, or overall just movement. Um, recovery is really being talked a lot about and the importance of recovery to be able to excel as a, as a young athlete and certainly as you're developing your career. And then also the mindfulness, right? And, and making sure that, um, I mean, with all we've seen so many unfortunate articles lately about student athletes and the pressure of being an athlete and, and what that's taking and some of them are taking their lives. Right. So I've seen tremendous um, support in bringing in conversations around mental health, mental wellness, mindfulness, dealing with the emotions of being a competitive athlete. And so I think that's that's really remarkable to see that there is that holistic approach. And we're starting to see that in younger and younger ages. As much as I wish that youth today could still participate in in multiple sports, right. um, so yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting to see, right? Are you are you seeing that and sensing that with rugby? We're, well, I, I think we're starting to see that, and I think a lot of it comes down to actually the logistics of delivering on. You know, if a coach is going to coach in the spring, right? Just for example. What does that coach do the rest of the year to survive in terms of have a living? And I think what we've seen in other sports, there's this sense then that if a club can be 10 months or 12 months of the year, then the infrastructure can be built by which that coach and coaching staff can exist and do what they want to do, which is you know coach young people to be their best. Um, so it's, it's almost this incentive to then, okay, well, if you play um, – this sport, let's just say rugby, and you're gonna let's 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 create three seasons by which you play. For the development of the athlete, that's probably the exact wrong thing that we would want to see happen. Um, particular sport like rugby that requires multiple. I mean, it's it's you got to be fast, but you have to have endurance. You got to be able to move side to side. You got to be explosive. You got to do contact, but you got to be able to pass. You got to be able to kick. You got to have vision. Um, so, kind of com combining a lot of the field sports that we're so used to. Um, playing in the United States. So all of those other field sports and other sports help 
people become better rugby players. Yes, you still have to spend time on catching a ball and passing a ball. But, you know, the U.S. Sevens is a great example. I mean, we ended up becoming a dominant team, um, not because we necessarily were better rugby players, but just because we could catch a ball over our head better than most other countries because most of the players we had at the time had grown up playing other sports, which we, which we do in the United States that, you know, we, we do rebounds and we catch footballs and we catch baseballs and things like that. And that became a competitive advantage of ours. And we weren't even that good at rugby and suddenly, you know, we're top four, uh, top two in the world. And then the layering in of the rugby and everything else. But I think that's a big concern of ours. You know, we've built a, an academy system right mm. now, but there's not really necessarily the numbers to fill it out we can already see the potential problems with that. If you're going to resource something, it's much easier to resource something on an ongoing basis, facilities, insurance, staff, coaches. Um, and that, that is that, that it, it's, a, it's, they're opposite uh, forces there that we're going to have to try to manage. And just in your experiences, have you seen groups that have done that better than others? Um, you know, there's there's certainly, uh, you know, you, you talk about a facility, right? So um, in, in my experience, having lived in different parts of the country, like there's there is tremendous value to an organization having their own space in their facility, right? Not only from like a brand awareness standpoint, but it the complexity as on, on the business side, right? On your end, on a management management side, if you don't have a facility and you're trying to build and develop this pipeline where um, you know, individuals are are having to, you know, families are trying to get a regular s training schedule and you're having to manage like the jigsaw puzzle of where practice is going to be here or there. Um, you know, that's incredibly challenging and it's a lot of energy that goes really out the door. So when you can have your own facility, um, huge value there at Mamba Sports Academy, right? I mean, one-stop shop. We called it like the, it, it was the Disneyland for athletes and, and, it it was a place where an athlete at any age, and let's say youth was our foundation, right? So we we worked with a lot of youth, but it was a location where a family could come, the athlete could train, um, spend you know multiple hours in the afternoon, and get a variety of different like services or or you know multiple elements of of their training um, in in one location, and that included the actual sport, like the skill training, and could have been basketball, soccer, volleyball. Um, I want to say there was about 10 different sports that we supported, but then they could also go and intermix in our recovery suite and go up and do cognitive training. That's another area that I didn't talk about, but really training the brain, right? How do you train the brain to be faster? To think faster, yeah. To think faster and, you know, less wear and tear on the body because you're not doing physical reps. You're, you're, you know, and then it, it, it converts to positive, uh, you know, positive results when you're back on the field or the court. Um, what, is, so, what is the history of Mamba Sports Academy? What was the impetus for yeah, Bryant yeah. for being involved in that? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, originally, actually, so my wife and I, I talked about um, being down in Houston. We moved back to Thousand Oaks, which is where we, we live now. And um, that's actually where, where my wife's from and all, all my in-laws are still here. And so we, we moved back and got plugged in really early on um, as part of the founding team with the CEO of what became Sports Academy. So the idea here was really create, you know, one-stop shop for athletes. And it was going to be based in Thousand Oaks. There's a 100,000 square foot warehouse that we converted from an old Amgen building um, to an actual training center. So 
the original name was Sports Academy. And about two years in, um, you know, we we had opened up and again, we're supporting sports, um, a variety of different sports. And one of the big ones was basketball. And at the time, uh, Kobe had a team down in Orange County that he was training and coaching and, and you know, obviously um, doing all the great stuff that, that he was known to be doing at the youth level. And he had come up and experienced what we were doing at Sports Academy. And, and from that experience, from bringing his team up and letting, letting the girls team train at the facility, he realized there was something there. And it, it had been a vision that he had really supported and wanted to kind of see play out um, at different points in his post-playing career. So he really believed in the model and he came in as a partner. And, and at that time, um, that's when we tr transitioned to Mamba, uh, became Mamba Sports Academy. And, you know, immediately it was now an international sensation and in, in location and got a lot of great traction and stayed, you know, multi-sport. But really at that point when he came in, um, you know, everything, all things basketball picked up from girls to boys and then supporting NBA and WNBA training as well. Yeah. Um, and then since, you know, since his passing, it has gone back to Sports Academy and is still here in the community, um, you know, doing doing great things and and leading lead the way. So you'd say facility is key to kind of a, a youth development model that is holistic? I do. I think facility and having a place where you can do multiple things in one location, uh, because think about, you know, people are busy. The demand for youth <laughs> training has increased. So, you know, for a family to have a location where they can either, you know, drop their young athlete off and, and go, and maybe there's probably another, another sibling in the mix who requires attention from the parent, um, you know, that, that allows the parent to know there's a safe place for the athlete to train, or, you know, if the parent can stay there and maybe set up shop, do some work while they're, while they're watching their, their son or daughter, um, compete compete to, you know, there's some advantage there too. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's, we, there's a lot we can grab from what other sports are doing well. And also, you know, maybe there's a, there's an even better way that, that we haven't yet figured out that we're still attached to the scholastic model and people can still um, play other sports, but they're, you know, improving and having opportunities to enter at different levels, I think is also a thing. You know, I think sometimes I, we see like in football, right? It's 17, you're either physically ready for college or not. And that's how you get recruited. And it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of growth that still happens physically and mentally after that. So. Yeah, you you said it. And, I, you know, I, I truly believe, and this is my own personal belief here, but, you know, I, I heard you um, acknowledge the advantage of multiple sports and, you know, seeing the value of how that translates into whatever sport the athlete decides to compete in, maybe at college or, or beyond at the professional level. Um, you know, chances are there's a lot of the skill development that um, came through other sports, right? And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I had a, the only, I, I have a fun experience taking us back to our Dartmouth days, but it was, uh, I'd never played field hockey in my life, California. I don't even think it existed, but I got recruited senior spring after my volleyball season to play on the field hockey team for their like spring season because they needed a goalie. Yeah. And volleyball, I was so comfortable with my, you know, any any ball flying above my yeah. head and using my hands. So I was like, yeah, let's do it, you know. And and I'd say the, the probably the only reason that I was in that position was because I was a volleyball player. So yeah. you know, not that was uh How'd you, know, you do? Yeah, I, I remember um you know, I think there was a goal or two scored on me, but I think for the most part, my saves outweighed the goals scored. So yeah. I'd say that say that was a win. And 
I just remember being so hot in all that gear because that was that was also new for me. <laughs> Split. Yeah, that up. is awesome. So you know, there was a study on, Olymp on Olympians, I think an Australian Institute of Sports study some years ago, but not it's not outdated, where the, for crossover athletes who had crossed over another sport, they had actually been in the sport before meddling less than four years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's – if the athlete is developed in all the different aspects, um, the ability to cross over still exists in adulthood. Yeah. I love that. I hope I'm, you know, it's important. Um, I hope those articles and, you know, publications still stay at the forefront. Um, so that's, you know, not, not forgotten. Um, because I, I, I do think, um, you know, athletes peak at different times and different sports will allow, uh, allow for that cross cross training model. So speaking of science, you're now at science of sport. What is science of sport? Yeah. Great question. So it's we're an educational nonprofit that provides curriculum and programming uh, to teachers and students. Um, and really, the model is, you know, it, we work in underserved communities. Um, so our goal is really to provide access to STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math, in communities where there aren't the resources. Um, and so traditionally, this means we'll work in what we would call like Title I schools, so where there's government funding um, and, and support to be able to bring um, more programming to, to communities um, that are in need. And this was a transition I made in January 21. So I was coming out of maternity lead, ha leave, had just finished, um, you know, kind of was on pause at Sports Academy and really had some time to reflect. It was right during COVID. And so it was really thinking about what I wanted my next move to be. And I've really, you know, that this I felt this way in coaching, right? You're you're giving you're giving back, paying it forward. Um, you're working with youth, and I really became interested in nonprofit. And I said, you know, let let's give it a shot. I started consulting with this group, uh, wonderful organization. Uh, we're small. We're a team of five full time employees, and we do programming all over the country. Um, the the founder he uh, is a, currently a professor of engineering at University of Arizona, and had read he had worked at MIT, SpaceX, always had been an avid athlete and really fond of sports. And he had read the book Moneyball. Yeah, this was probably back in like 2012, 2013. Uh, and he realized, you know, wow, there's something here. There's there's a curriculum and program that we could design for for youth to get them excited about STEM and and really see a pathway. Um, through, you know, through, we, we bring, we create learning examples and, and curriculum that's tied to sports, right? So they get to have real life experiences around sports that tie back to our STEM concepts. And also we create a pathway for them to understand opportunities in the STEM workforce, right? So if, if they want a job in STEM, uh, here's all the incredible, you, you know, positions that sports teams have where you could go on and, and pursue something. I, I'm so excited about this. Like this is like, <laughs> as an engineer who's so like, there's so many questions. Like, is yeah. it age specific? Great question. Third, third through eighth grade is our sweet spot. So I'd say, you know, last couple of years in elementary school and then we work a lot with middle schools. However, we have worked with students as young as kindergarten and all through high school. Is it plug into a P curriculum that then dictates the sports or is it you can plug it into an existing sports or sports league that can then use the curriculum as part of the sport? Yeah, we do. We do both. So one of our main 
uh, funding sources are professional teams. So MBA, MLB, uh, we're, we're hoping to get in the NFL, um, NWSL, MLS. So we will partner with a team. And traditionally, that team has a corporate partner who has a STEM initiative, right? So if it's, uh, it could be a bank, it could be, um, uh, you know, any, any company, right, who has a focus in STEM. Uh, they'll they'll be the funding source. And then when we work with the team, the curriculum is focused on that sport of that team. So, for example, MLB, um, which was really our first partnership was with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, all the curriculum is focused on baseball. We bring in teachers from with math, science or physical education background. We create a teacher workshop. They get all the materials through, through a learning management system. And then they can go and implement the programming on their own throughout the course of a school year. Um, so that that's kind of one model. The other model is we will work with a school directly who maybe has some funding through through grants or whatnot. And then we can create a multi-sport approach uh, where we can include, you know, up to 10 to 12 different sports. And then the teacher can actually go in either in a in a summer camp model or after school model or even during the school year and implement the programming as well. This is amazing. So is um the curriculum then like is it are, is it physics is it like what is like is it just is it is it arithmetic like how do you guys it's a great yeah it's all it it would be physics for high school um okay. but it's all age appropriate grade appropriate and we incorporate what the state standards are so because we do, we, okay. we do and that's where um you know, our, our founder is still really involved on, we call him our chief scientist, right? So he's really involved in evaluating what the state standards are for each of our programs. It does vary. Um, and we want to make sure, you know, the, uh, that our curriculum is addressing those standards. Um, and then the other thing we do is we look at for, for our students, we'll have them take an assessment uh, and we'll work really closely with um, the either the principals or the district to determine, you know, where the particular gaps are so we can address that and help close the learning gap for that particular population through through our programming. Plus, it's so much fun. I mean, yeah. we're, getting the, we're getting to travel, you know, the students are getting we do field trips, the students are getting to come to all the stadiums. And um, it, it's such a great way to expose students. Are you finding that teachers are like, no, no, we're already too busy. We don't need additional or like they need their professional development credit. So this is a unique way to get it. Or like for a lot of like, what's the incentive? The incentive is that it's a very engaging and interactive professional development opportunity for the teachers. So I can imagine teachers, you know, when it's talking around science and math, it's it's you know, you you maybe go to have an experience and you sit and do a lot of listening, maybe or, you know, during COVID, there was a lot of obviously virtual workshops going on. So um, we created a curriculum where it's interactive. Teachers get to go through a lot of the lessons in person during the professional development. So they're getting to be active, learning firsthand uh, what the curriculum is. And then, you know, because of how involved and engaging it is, they can see that through line to their classroom. And so we get some great feedback just about how, how unique an experience it is uh, for them for their professional development. Are you finding it phys ed teachers or um, kind of like uh, general teachers, elementary school teachers kind of taking that forward? I would say the majority are um, <clears throat> math and science. Yeah, we do. We do get physical education, but we are heavy on math and science. 
Okay. So for us, like with VR, our foundation, we're building out a six-week kind of rugby curriculum. It's non-contact that can kind of plug and play, whether it's town rec departments, whether it's um, after-school programs at the YMCA's Boys and Girls Clubs, or it's just leagues that we have to run. Um, we're trying to figure out, okay, what's the best model? And then really important for us, kind of what are some pieces that are tied to that, that it's not just about the rugby, but it's actually then helping people change lives. Rugby does that. Most sports do that. And there's a a value system connected to that. But I think going beyond that, I think for us, the original impetus for that was the, you know, the Giants Community Fund, San Francisco Giants, and how they kind of have a word of the the day that they really work on, whether it's character or nutrition or something else. Um, For us, this is a, fantastic idea and model what what would we need to do to figure out how to implement this and, and work with science of sport yeah i mean done let's uh yeah. let's let's figure this out because you know we don't have a rugby curriculum yet we did okay. just bring on um actually she's a oh gosh i'm blanking um ariana ramsey yeah uh, 22 yeah, yeah, yeah she, she's awesome she, i i got Olympian. Dartmouth Olympian, and she was our first rugby connect, and you know I got oh, connected awesome. with her, and so let's figure this out because there's okay. um, a great way that we can uh, one obviously work together, which would be fantastic yeah, awesome. to build build some rugby programming and and you know strengthen your your local community. I just I love all that. So, so again, times are the essence. I mean, we've been geez to 150 schools and other programs over the last three months something crazy just yeah, you know that's crazy we have players awesome. in the community yeah yeah hundreds of hours volunteered to kind of share the game or people that are trying to do it and and pe classes and everything and so for us this would actually be a really um this may be the kind of the, the lost leader in a way that helps get into some of the schools that really haven't had a chance or a desire to kind of pick up uh, pe rugby um, and then for those that are, like a really opportunity to really make it even um, more sticky and a greater experience. So yes, think, after we're, yes, the, the time is of the essence. <laughs> all right, we'll do it. Yeah, yes, I, yes. I would say the last thing on that is just like the branding for the team is always, I mean, everything we do incorporates, you know, anything from, you know, where we can list players, right, and actual stats of the players and utilizing that as lessons to, you know, how to become a general manager of, yeah. you know, a professional rugby team. And so there's so many great ways that we get the free jacks like branded uh, uh, throughout awesome. the program. Yeah. We originally were, were devising the foundation. The We had an acronym for SCORE, and it was, you know, um, scholarships, curriculum was the next one. And, and the, the main thing was that is, is, is STEM and, like, figuring out a way to do rugby and STEM because there's so much in rugby, you know, that you could use to to do that. So, yes, the answer is yes. I, no one can see my smile, but I'm smiling yeah. so big right now because <laughs> my brain is just, like, going fast. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay, good. We're going to do that. We're going to That's chat. awesome. We're going to jump into rapid fire. Just a couple quick questions. Yep. Um, proudest sporting moment. Um, okay. So as an athlete, it was probably, um, you know, the environment I loved was sophomore year. We held the Ivy League tournament at Dartmouth in Lead Arena. It was the last year where there was actual, actually a neutral location that hosted all the teams. Um, and so I'd say, you know, just representing Dartmouth had a great tournament personally, which is, which is always nice. Yeah. Uh, but, but also like just feeling the, the love from the Hanover community and the Dartmouth community. Um, so that was as a player. And the other one was, I was able to attend in, in, uh, 1999, the women's world cup at the Rose bowl where 
USA beat China in penalty kicks. And, you know, a lot of people know it as Brandy Chastain ripped off her jersey. But the fact that I was able to, you know, be there and really witness history and just what that did for not only women's soccer, but women's sports and, and sports as a whole was incredible. Yeah, that's that's an amazing moment. One of the greatest yeah. in uh, U.S. sports history. Yeah. The, I didn't even ask you about WISE. WISE LA, are you still involved? Absolutely. Yeah, WISE stands for Women in Sports and Events, and I'm president of the Los Angeles chapter. There's about 23 chapters. Um, and really what we pride ourselves on is being the leading voice and resource for the women in sports. So, so this is not necessarily female athletes. Um, this is about women who have gone into the business of sport. And so we're networking um, career development organization. It's all volunteer based, uh, but we have an incredible Los Angeles community and, um, you know, just just always love all the meaningful work we, we're able to do uh, throughout, you know, not only throughout Los Angeles, which is such a hotbed for for sports, but also um, at the national level as well. Are you seeing more energy come in now that Angel City's there? Um, no. I mean, you know, Angel City, if, if if you're listening right now to this podcast, Angel City, if you don't know who Angel City is, uh, please check it out. It's the new women's uh, professional sports team. And, you know, I, I'd say truly Los Angeles has been a hotbed for for sports. Um, I mean, you know, with the Rams and the Lakers and the Dodgers all winning kind of their yeah. version of like the World Series in the past couple of years. Uh, we have, you know, the Chargers have come up to to uh, the community, but really bringing in a women's professional sports team. Uh, the the Sparks was the only other women's pro team in LA, which is hard to believe. And um, so to bring in Angel City and see what they're doing just from a community building standpoint has been a lot of fun, just as always being a soccer, a fan of soccer was my first love as an athlete. And, uh, you know, and obviously being in the industry, I, I couldn't be more proud of the work that uh, they're bringing to Their the marketing is awesome. Yeah, unbelievable unbelievable and you know that's that's where when i think about wise and like our position in wise it's it's so so great to see a lot of the women who and i say women because it's a very um he, a lot of the employees at the organization are female um and a lot of them were at other teams um and prior to angel city coming into 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 play and so you know that's just a great way to see how the wise community supports each, supports each other. And it, it's been so fun to see a lot of our membership and our, our senior women who serve on our advisory board move into these roles for Angel City Football Club and be part of this incredible inaugural year they're having. That's awesome. Is there a lot more energy in LA with the Olympics coming as well? Are you starting to see that? Yeah, you know, I think um, it still feels probably a little far away. Um, you know, there's there's every time you go to LAX, uh, you know, you're thinking, OK, how are we going to have host the Olympics here? We need a little work on that yeah. airport. It's, <laughs> it's a little it's a little uh, daunting. I'm sure yeah. it's, you know, that's all in play. But the the cool thing that's happening is at the youth level, um, there is a big focus on providing access to our Los Angeles community, um, especially in underserved communities to programming and sports that that have a pathway to the Olympics, right? Because in theory, a lot of these, you know, nine, 10 year olds who are just getting exposed to certain sports right now could possibly be at Olympians in the yeah. Los Angeles, you know, in the in 28. So um, there's a lot of energy at the youth level. Um, and we're only going to start to see more and more, you know, the the um, prominence that the the Olympics and the branding will have here in Los Angeles. So yeah, it's exciting. 
uh, Rugby World Cup has been both of them. The men's in 31 and the women's in 33 have both been given to the United States exclusively. And so LA will obviously play a, a, an awesome role in that um, for sure. It's, it's a great kind of decade ahead for, for sport and for rugby, you know, with how well our, our women's and men's teams are doing at the Olympic level and uh, with World Cups right around the corner is really cool. Yeah, it's it's so exciting, and it sounds like maybe that means you'll you'll be out here a little more. Yes, again, back on planes. <laughs> <Train them. laughs> yes. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> you do that trip Boston to San Diego, yeah, three four times a week, um, a month. Oh, was lovely. Yeah, yeah, lovely. <laughs> Last question, kind of ask everybody: if you were running the Free Jacks today, what would be the one thing you would focus on? Yeah, you know, uh, bringing women into leadership roles within the organization. Say, well um, yeah. So. It's you know it's interesting on that we haven't done a great job of that you know if you look at our board and our ownership group, um, uh, and, and that we we need to do and continue to work to do better. And there's a big contemplation and trying to figure out how to professionalize um, the women's 15s game in the United States. We have some mm -hmm. awesome players, but they're all playing in the UK for the most part or in an amateur competition in the United States. And um, in fact, I had a board meeting on it yesterday, just figuring out ways to do that, but where it's, you know, that's where it can be female led and, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be just copying kind of what men MLR has done, but doing what, what works best. So. Well, I'm happy to uh, talk offline. If you know, you want to throw, we can yeah. call some ideas back and forth. I would so. love that actually. It would be super yeah. helpful. Yeah. Awesome. You got it. Anything I, I can do. Ashley, how do people get a hold of you on social? What's your handle? Uh, my handle is at eAshleyDean13. D-E-A-N, so, folks, 13. D-E-A-N. Is yeah. that IG, Twitter? Like, what do you usually use? Yeah, I'm more, I'm kind of in the IG world these days. Okay. So IG, and then, you know, fortunately, like, automatically gets over to Facebook. Ashley, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Everybody out there, thanks yeah. for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world of sports, business, and, of course, rugby. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and give us some comments and give us some feedback. Ashley, amazing. Thank you so Great. much. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Awesome.